theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by a dear friend, Victor Shkolnikov from Chicago and the Shkolnikov family in memory of the yard site of his grandmother, the first yard site of his grandmother, Liba Basyoyel Shkolnikov, who passed away one year ago on Gimel Nissen, today on the third day of Nissen, and this is her first yard site. Tehei I'm just going to mention a few words about her. Liba Basyoyel, Mrs. Shkolnikov, was born on the first day of Pesach in Kishinov, Kishinov, which was uh, considered Romania, in 1928. In 1940, the Soviet Union took over the area where she lived. Today it's known as Moldova. You probably have read a lot about Moldova recently. And a year later, the Nazis were advancing on Kishinev, and her father went to war to fight the Germans, never to return. Her mother and her had to flee east to run away from Hitler's uh, armies and uh, SS murderers, and they fled east to Tashkent, which is Uzbekistan. That's where many Jews fled to, and many of them survived. They had, a, they were a family in Moldova and Kishinev of great means. They were very affluent, so they were being persuaded not to leave, because you don't leave behind so many assets and so much money. But Liba's mother, of blessed memory, told her that all material assets in the world don't equate to the value of life. So they gave up everything, and they fled, and they survived in Tashkent. Hitler didn't make it to Tashkent. Now, Liba, the the woman whose yard site is today, she picked up languages very easily. So she quickly learned the native language in Uzbekistan, and that allowed her to work as a translator and earn money in those very difficult years and save her family from starvation. Because many fled the front lines of the German army but they died from hunger. She was only 13 years old at the time. As I said, she was born in 1928. When the war ended, she met her future husband, Victor's grandfather. They got married in Tashkent. A year later, they returned to his native city in Odessa, Ukraine. The Soviet government told their people how much living space each person is allowed to live, is allowed to have. This was part of communism. But Victor's grandmother, Liba, didn't accept this. And from 1954 to 1964, she built her own home together with her husband. At times, she would carry the bricks herself to save on costs since money was such a great struggle. And finally, she came to America and moved to Chicago. She learned the English language within a year. She was very good with languages, as I said. In the last 30 years of her life, she lived in Chicago building a new life and helping so many Russian Jewish immigrants who, at the fall of communism, came to the United States of America. Her phone never stopped ringing as people needed a translator to help them with all their needs. Most of them didn't know English. She learned English. She never charged a penny for the help she provided so many people for a quarter of a century. 
Her grandson writes to me, she taught us all a very valuable lesson, never lose the chance to seize the opportunity to do a mitzvah. As she would tell me, Kindelach, children, mitzvahs are eternal and everlasting. And the Shkolnikov family is dedicating this class in her memory. As I said, the third day of Nissan is her first yard site. As she passed away one year ago in Chicago at the age of 93. Her grandson writes to me that his brother Zev had a baby girl a few hours before their grandmother passed away. It was Tuesday, the funeral was Wednesday, and Thursday morning by the Torah, he named his baby girl Liba after grandmother, and uh, <clears throat> he blesses her as well. Uh, she turns one today for many healthy years until 120 together with the whole family, and may your grandmother be an eternal source of light and blessing and inspiration to you and the whole family, the whole Shkolnikov, distinguished family, my dear friends, and to all of the Russian Jews and all of the Ukrainian Jews and all good people and all of the Jewish people um, for many, many years until the great moment of Hekitsu Viranu Nusheikh Neyafar, with the coming of Mashiach, Amen. And thank you so much for your friendship and generosity. So, I hope everybody remembers what we have been learning. <laughs> on here, on the uniqueness of here, on how the Jewish, what is the Jewish perspective on here, and the various paradoxes that we find in Yiddishkeit concerning here. Now, a few big questions came up, and I want to address them today. As I said, I'm going to address them today. And that has to do with women covering their hair. But before we get to that, let's just, let's just recall the main theme of what we've been learning in the Maimah so that everything can be Ezer Hashem fall into place at least on some level. This is a very, very deep Maimah, as you probably have realized. <laughs> and uh, it has many layers to it, many dimensions to it. So it's important just to get the core, the core issue. <clears throat> in Yiddishkeit, we see that there's so many different approaches to hear, depending on the context. Sometimes shaving is a mitzvah. This week's Parshas Mitzvah. Shaving is a mitzvah, and not once, twice. If you learned, if you started to learn Parshas Mitzvah, you're going to start learning Parshas Mitzvah. <clears throat> this is a good time to mention, <clears throat> excuse me, the great, great custom to learn every day <clears throat> a section of the parsha with Rashi on Sunday. You learn from Rishon to Sheni with Rashi on Monday. You learn from Sheni to Shlishi on Tuesday, Shlishi to Ravi. And on Shabbos, you'll do the last one. Each day of the week, you do one section. So it's not like Shabbos, you do the whole parsha. It could take anywhere between 5 and 20 minutes, usually not longer, <clears throat> even if you do it thoroughly and well, especially with all the translations today. And when Shabbos comes... You know the whole parsha with Rashi. I mention this because uh, in recent years, I say this often, you have heard this from me, it's like a, bro- a scratched uh, CD. In recent years, you know, when I teach and lecture, uh, to see the, the lack of knowledge, even in Chumash, the five books of Chumash, which is like the basis of basis of all Judaism, and I'm talking about people who even went through the whole yeshiva system, they spent 10, 20 years learning 
and still the the lack of knowledge in the parshas is is quite astounding and there's no it's 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 like it deprives us of uh, the most basic blueprint for life that we were given and uh, so this is just a very easy and simple way every day you take 5 10 15 20 minutes and you learn Chumash and Rashi it's not a hard limud and you finish the year you finish the whole Chumash after a few years you know Chumash pretty well so uh, I'm mentioning this because you'll tell somebody oh there's a mitzvah to shave the mitzvah a lot of people don't know what you're talking about but if you if you learn Parshas Mitzvah you know that the mitzvah has to shave twice because when the symptoms of leprosy are gone and the Kayan comes and examines examines the Mitzvah, the leper, the man or the woman, and he sees that the symptoms are gone. There's a process of purification with two birds and with uh, hyssop and with uh, scarlet. It's a whole process of purification that you could read about in Parshish Mitzvah and in Rambam, Hilchus Tumas Tzaras. And then there's a count. There's a count and on, on the Vahaya Bayayim Ashvi, as the Torah says, on the seventh day, the Mitzayra shaves all of his hair. Igaleich is called Sara. It's interesting. Yeah. So after the purification process, on the seventh day, there's a count, and on the seventh day, he shaves all of his hair, and the Torah specifies all of his hair, literally his head and his beard, and the eyebrows, that's called sorry, all the hair. There are a few exceptions here that's in invisible places you don't have to shave, but any place where there's a gathering of hair and it's visible, the Mitzvah shaves. But that's the second shaving of the Mitzvah. Before that, the Torah says that when the Kayan goes and he sees the symptoms of um, of uh, the Mitzvah, that they're gone, and he purifies him, so after bathing and submerging his clothes in the mikveh, he shaves all of his hair, and he goes to the mikveh, and he's pure. And then there's a seven-day count, and on the seventh day, he shaves his hair again. So that's a double shave just within seven days. He shaves, and then he counts the seventh day, and the seventh day, he shaves again. So that's a matzah. You also have the mitzvah of the Levim who shaved their hair, including their beards and their head. In the midbar, as I said, that was a temporary mitzvah. It never repeated itself again. And then you have the nazir, who... If he becomes tummy, if he becomes impure in the middle of his Nazir years, in Nazir period, he has to shave. And then again, after the time is up, the time frame is up, there's the shaving of the Nazir. And over there, it's a mitzvah. Then we have by women, who don't have a mitzvah to shave their hair, but once they're married, they have a mitzvah to cover their hair. Then you have the Nazir, while he's a Nazir, who has a mitzvah to grow his hair. And we're talking about the hair on the head. And he's not allowed to cut any strands of hair. And then you have the Jewish male who has a mitzvah to keep his payas and not cut the payas and and not not and not not to destroy the beard. That's not on the head. That's in the payas and the beard. So Samachetzik says, you know, is hair positive? Is hair negative? Do we like hair? Do we not like hair? Do we believe in shaving hair? Do we not believe in shaving hair? And so forth. And the key issue that we have been learning is that. From a Jewish perspective, everything in the universe and everything in the human body is extremely significant. Here, in Kabbalistic uh, literature, is not just a physical phenomenon that grows on the body. You know, in our modern terminology, here is defined as, uh, it's a collective term, you know, for the slender, thread-like outgrowths of the epidermis of mammals. Is that the right way of saying it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from the epidermis, from the skin of mammals, 
we have this uh, thread-like outgrowth, which is true, and it forms the body covering. <laughs> it comes through the epidermis. Through the epidermis, right, yeah. Right, and it forms our body covering. And that's, of course, true. But Jewish mysticism also teaches us that here contains energy, profound energy, right? In the Zohar, it says that uh, every strand of here harbors entire universes, meaning here is energy. Because the reason is, because as it says in Daniel, as we learned in the Mimer, the Zohar teaches, and this is a great idea in Kabbalah, that the creative energy of God flows through here. The term that's used in Tanakh and Kabbalah to describe the flow of divine energy is Sairus, Sin Ayin Reish Vavsov. Here, as Daniel says, I saw the ancient one sitting. His garment was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like white wool. The white wool of a sheep that was just born. It's one day old before it got soiled. And therefore the, the wool is, is, is absolutely pure. Why is here the, the term used in Jewish mysticism, in Jewish spiritual texts, for God's flow of energy? That's the topic in, in the, in, in this Maimon that Samachsadik explains that the energy on its own is absolutely infinite. And for the flow to be able to be creative and constructive, it gets condensed, it gets filtered, it gets uh, restricted, what we call tzimtzum, through filtered channels that condense and limit and curtail the energy so that it should be able to be suitable for each world to absorb it according to its own unique uh, essence and function and substance. In fact, one of the most profound sections in the Zoyar is known as Idra Rabba. It's a commentary on uh, Parshas Nosoy. And much of it is dedicated to the discussion of here as reflecting the divine flow of creative energy. And the, the Zoyar even says there's an expression that from the hair of a person, you could know who he or she is. So here, there's, 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 there's a lot in here. And here we come across the paradox of here, because on one hand, here is alive. It's alive. <laughs> That's why it's growing. On the other hand, when we cut it, there's no pain. You can't compare it to the skin, for example, or the hide, or other parts, organs and limbs of the body. God forbid if another part of the body you know, gets amputated, gets cut off. You know, one can't even describe how painful it can be. So on one hand, you know, here is rooted in a tubular pit of the epidermis, they call it. It's, a, it's like a tube-like pit, it's known as the hair follicle, right? The hair follicle. And it's nourished by the blood vessels. It is nourished. In other words, there's a flow of energy. Remember, blood, ki adam hu nefesh. Blood contains the soul. So the hair is nourished by the blood vessels in a papilla that extends into the follicle and into the root of the hair. Every hair has a shayrish, it has a root. And this makes it part of the living organism of the body. On the other hand, here doesn't contain blood vessels nor nerves and therefore doesn't generate any pain when we remove it from the rest of the body. So here Kabbalistically acts as a straw, as he puts it, as a, as a, as a vessel, as a channel, right? Like a hollow vessel that transmits energy into the outside world. And each strand of here, which is shaped like a straw, it's like the Hebrew letter Vav, 
which in Kabbalah represents Hamshacha, it's like similar to the English I, similar, communicates a level of energy that due to its intensity, it, you can't communicate it directly, only through the straw, only through the channel, through the condensed energy of here, through the contracted and curtailed medium, which was represented by Cyrus, which dilutes, it mitigates, it compromises the, the intense energy. Oh. So now, once we understand this, the question is always what direction the energy is going in, where the energy exactly is coming from, and therefore how we look at here in the, in the, in the, Jew, in the Jewish perspective. And the key, the key issue that we discussed, and I'm just going to use again the language of the Maimer, even though it's abstract, is, are you talking about here that comes from Atik? Or you're talking about here that comes from Malchus, from Nukva. Atik is the highest sphera, and Nukva is on the bottom of the spheres. Atik is completely infinite, transcend, infinitely transcendent, and Nukva Malchus is the energy that actually encloses itself and manifests itself and becomes embodied within the universe. In the language of Jewish mysticism, Malchus descends into Bria, Yitzira. See, what do we mean it descends? I'm not talking about, you know, a, a ladder. It climbs down a ladder. Descend is just a graphic uh, way of describing the energy that becomes embodied within the human body, within every single creation, every single creature. The, its heartbeat is rooted in Malchus, which is also known as the Shechina, the Divine Presence, where Atik is infinite and transcendent. So the Tzamech Tzedek says, when here comes from Atik, then the here itself is full of holiness, and it can't be distorted. And that's the here of the Nazir. And it's not usual. The Nazir is a unique person, a man or a woman, who commits their life to a certain level of holiness, and there are certain conditions discussed at length in Parshas Nasai. It was like Shimshin. Shimshin is the classic Nazir. And his here contained his holiness and his power, which is why Delilah, Delilah, the famous woman, when she got control of Shimshin's here, of Samson's here, that was the end of his power. That was the end of his strength. So not only was the here not a compromise of his energy, on the contrary, the holiness of the Nazir and the strength of Samson came through the here. The here was a channel for tremendous strength. And that's why the here of a Nazir has so much holiness in it, and you're not allowed to cut it. You're not allowed to cut it. Similar to it, on a different level, but similarly, is the concept of the payas. A regular Jewish man doesn't have to grow his hair. On the contrary, there could be a problem of chatzitza, with your tefillin. A Nazir, he's not allowed to cut any hair. With a regular person, a regular man who's not a Nazir, we have the payas and the beard, which also captures the here that comes from Atik. The Kedusha of Atik is reflected there, and that's why the Hadras Ponim, the holiness of a Jewish face, is defined by the payas and the beard. There was once, a, I once saw a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe to a Jew, and the person was saying uh, that, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of Yerush there's Erlech who don't have a beard, they have different ways, different Heterim and Shulchan Aruch. You know, if you don't use the, it says, Loisashchis Paskanchi, and I'll destroy the beard. So if they don't use a tie, they don't use a razor, there's different methods that many halachic authorities allow it, which is why there are Jews who shave their beards, and uh, there's, you know, there's dispensations for it. 
So the Rebbe wrote back to this person. He said, it's true, but I just want to ask you a question. If you, <laughs> It's just a very interesting response. If you would make, if you would imagine somebody, if you would imagine yourself making a painting of Moshe Rabbeinu, yeah? Would you do it with a beard or without a beard? How do you think <laughs> we do it with a beard or without a beard? In other words, the instinctive, the instinctive uh, feeling of the Jew all the generations was, Yes, there may be a tatum and dispensations, but the payas and the beard captured, capture a certain holiness, which is why, especially those who were connected to Kabbalah and Hasidus were so makbid, were so diligent about the holiness of a beard. And, uh, in recent years, because of the Enlightenment, which is, I think, connected to Greek influence, there were those who, you know, who found different hetatim to, uh, to cut the beard, and some of them are very, you know, I do it according to halacha and Yerushalayim. But I'm, I'm pointing this out because, especially in Kabbalistic Svarim, the beard captures a lot of Kedusha. It says in Zohar that the Yudgimel Midas Harachamim, the 13 attributes of compassion, are manifested through the beard. In fact, there's a tradition that the Bashamtiv had in his beard 13 sections. Corresponding to the Yudgimel Midas Harachim, called Yudgimel Tikune Dikna, the thirteen attributes of God's beard, the hair of his of his beard, it's called Dikna in Kabbalah. It represents a flow from Atik. So it says that the Balshamtiv. We don't have a picture of the Balshamtiv. The picture that they have of the Balshamtiv is not the Balshamtiv. It's a different Balshem. It's Rebelio Balshem from England. The Balshamtiv would be so Balshamtiv. We don't have a picture of him. The, Baal, the famous picture of the Balshamtiv is not the Balshamtiv. It's a picture of somebody in London who was a very interesting figure, and they called him the Balshem. Like he had a very, he was an interesting personality. It's not for now. But the Balshem, but there's a tradition that the Balshemtiv had 13 sections. You could see 13 in his beard, because the beard represents Yudgimom So that's one level of hair. But then there's the hair that comes from Malchus. And Malchus is all about the energy that really manifests itself and becomes restricted to be able to vivify the world and every creature in the world. And here the Tzemach Tzedek says there's a difference between Malchus itself and the here. Because since the here, the Malchus itself is already restricted energy, so now when restricted energy becomes further restricted through here, becomes further condensed, you have to be careful with it. Why? Because it can often be misused. It can often be misconstrued. The great example he kept on giving was when the Talmud Chachem says a joke, or the Talmud Chachem speaks mundane, engages in mundane conversation, or the Zohar says Reb Hamnuna would teach Pirkei Shtusa. He would, he would teach chapters of Shtusim to his students before learning. Or the Gemara says that Rabbi would say, he would say jokes before learning. Yeah. So someone said, it says, even those jokes and Prikadishtusa, they had profound energy. It's like here. It's condensed. It's a different format. It's anecdotal. It's humorous. It's funny. It looks like a little, you know, Shtus is like uh, superficial. But really, it has tremendous, tremendous energy. And he gave the example of Shloyma and Rebmeya, right? That they gave metaphors, but the metaphors themselves were so deep. So they needed metaphors. And that's what here, here is like a metaphor. Here is taking the idea, the nimshal, and putting it into the marshal. That's what here is. Cyrus is tzimtzum. What's tzimtzum? Tzimtzum is taking the energy, transforming it 
through another medium, using another medium to transform the energy in a different vessel so that it should be able to be absorbed. So that's incredible. You couldn't understand Shleim HaMelech's wisdom without here, without a parable. You couldn't understand Reb Meir without a parable. The Tzomach says, but some other people start giving you parables and it's just wasted. It's excessive, it's unnecessary, because this is the big rule in life. Whatever you don't have to say in a shir, you're not supposed to say, and if you say it, it takes away. Kol yasir dami. whatever is extra, it's like missing, right? I think I told you once, the great rule of speech. Stand up, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them, and sit down. Or if somebody once introduced a speaker and said, this speaker doesn't need an introduction, he needs an ending. So the bottom line is that a person has to be careful. You know, when you're giving a presentation, one of the mistakes people make is they put everything in. No, 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 no. Whatever doesn't belong, doesn't belong. If it's extra, it takes away. More is less. Less is more. The Gemara says, The Gemara says, When you teach, it has to be done with brevity, with conciseness. Know what you're saying. Know why you're saying it. You'll hear a lot of presentations, people put in stuff, they do not belong there. It's part of the structure, good. If it's not part of the structure, out, out. You confuse me. Now, you could tell a story, you could give a metaphor, you could tell an anecdote, but you have to know, you have to be accountable for it. If not, it's shtusim. If not, it's taking away. Whenever you say something that does not have to be said, it's excessive, it's unnecessary, it's superfluous, it actually takes away from the energy, takes away from the depth, from the wisdom, from the communication. And indeed, it's a different form of presentation. Sometimes you get up, people speak, and it just becomes about entertainment. It's superficial, it's shallow. Rather than the entertainment being a keli for the toichen. You understand the difference? It's very different. You have here, the here is supposed to channel the energy, not interrupt the energy. So it depends where you're talking about. On a higher level, here becomes a communication of energy. When the person goes down to a lower level, so then the entertainment itself becomes just a distraction. It just becomes a distraction of the energy. So therefore, you have to understand, he says, that the Levi, who explained this, the avoid of Klois and he goes out of the Kalim. So therefore, the Ur that's in the Kali is very mitzumtzum. So if that goes through the here. It's an extra tzimtzum, so the Torah says you have to shave it. The same is true with the mitzayra. There's the mitzvah to shave the hair. The same is true with the nazir when he becomes tummy or when he finishes his nazirus. Because this is all a type of hair from which the energy could be misconstrued, and therefore you have to be very, very careful with this type of hair. You have to be very careful. When gvura goes into tzimtzum, oh, it could be a little dangerous. When gvura becomes mitzumtzum, it, bec- it could become it could become difficult. We now come. Somebody asked a very good question. If so, a woman is malchus. If a woman is malchus, so then there's no mitzvah that a woman should shave her hair. There is a custom in some communities. The Hungarian communities had a custom that women before the wedding shaved the hair, and there were different reasons for it. One of the the biggest reason was because of chatzitza and the mikveh. There shouldn't be issues with mikveh, hair getting entangled, so they shaved the hair. Other reasons that they gave, and some communities still have the custom, but it's certainly not an obligation in halacha. <laughs> it's not an obligation. It's a custom, it's a tradition in some communities. The halacha is that a married woman covers the hair, but you don't say about a levi you should cover the hair, or a mitzvah should cover the hair. So if the hair is something 
that's a symptom after Malchus, and therefore the energy has to be protected. What's the difference? Sometimes you cover and sometimes you shave. And another woman, another person asked the question, what about not married women? I don't understand. If she's a woman, so what happens when you're not married? What's the difference between married and not married? Excellent questions. And the Tzemach clearly brings in here. He speaks about Nazar, he speaks about Mitzrayim, he speaks about Alevi, and he speaks about... He speaks about uh, the two, uh, the Mitzvah twice, and he speaks about the woman, and he speaks about the uh, beard and payas. So he mentions all of them. But how are we to understand all of this? So very briefly, briefly, but imp- the captive woman, the captive woman, the captive woman right? shaving, Vigilchas Very good. Thank you for reminding me. So I, I, I want to bring this down. I'm gonna, I want to try to bring this down in a very practical way <laughs> for people to understand, at least to some degree, to some degree. Generally, when we speak about women covering their hair, it's important to establish something. And that is, you know, often people have questions. It's not easy for everybody to cover their hair. I mean, I, I'm not a woman, so I can't talk from experience. You know, a yarmulke, I wear a yarmulke, but you can't compare a yarmulke to a shaitl, to a wig. You can't compare it. It's a whole different experience. It's sometimes very difficult for people. Now, it's important, but it's important to establish something before we get into the explanation. If you're an objective person and you're an intelligent person and you see, you watch a phenomenon and you see something unique about this phenomenon, and then you ask, what is responsible for this phenomenon? To what should we attribute it? And then you see there's a few unique factors. You may say, I don't understand how and why. Good, good, good question. But an intelligent person has to stop in awe and say, wow, maybe there's something here that is deeper than what my eye can see. Right, So if you see, let's say, a certain people or a certain culture or a certain family or a certain nation and there's something going on that's very powerful and successful and you see certain factors that exist in their lives, you have to ask, well, maybe there's something here that I don't fully get. There's no question, anybody, it's not something I think that anybody can argue about it, that the phenomenon of the Jewish family is a unique reality within history. You're talking about a people that doesn't constitute even a quarter of a percent of civilization, and much of our history did not, and has been persecuted, and yet the strength of the Jewish family unit is so powerful that thousands of years later, you have a people that's that not only is surviving, but also thriving. And Generally speaking, there are, of course, exceptions. Generally speaking, within the Jewish people, the family unit has always remained extremely powerful. You know, I've read articles from uh, non-Jewish writers who have written in envy and in curiosity, what is the secret of Jewish marriages? What is the secret of Jewish families? Now, you know that I'm not the person who believes that all families are perfect and we don't have serious dysfunction in our families. I'm not that person. But... uh, on the other hand, you have to know, we have to know that 3,000 years after the inception of the Jewish people, Jewish families, Kain Yerbu, with God's grace, have a magic to them. 
that is unbelievable. It comes back all the way to the beginning. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Vigada Talavincha, tell the story to your children. And they have been telling their story to the children. While in secular societies, you have a divorce rate that could be 50, 60%, sometimes more, sometimes a little less. And in recent years, even within the religious Jewish community, the divorce rate has increased significantly. And there's many challenges in marriages, and the therapists who are sitting here can testify to that firsthand, and some of us can testify to that firsthand. That's true. But still, nobody can question or deny the fact that the percentages of divorce within a structured Jewish family, when both people are mentioned, and both people are ready to work on themselves, it doesn't happen magically, is far, far less, far less. And the question is, what did it? What is responsible for this? So when you see certain things that are happening within a traditional Jewish family, you could say it has nothing to do with it, but if you have a scientific and honest mind, you say, well, maybe there's something to it. The fact is that the, the ingredients that define Jewish marriages are, of course, the laws of family purity, mikvah, Shabbos, Kashrus, and one of the things is covering the hair. A woman covers her hair. So somebody might say, I don't see the significance in that. I don't see why covering hair would help a marriage, not help a marriage. It's irrelevant. I want my hair uncovered. Fine, I get it. But somebody who has a humility and wants to really, really understand what is the greatest blessing in life, you have to look and say, wow, if our families have been around thousands of years, if our marriages have been the strongest marriages in all of society, if our marriages have allowed us to maintain families and generations with loyalty and dedication, despite our problems and despite our dysfunction and despite our traumas, we know about all of that, we know. I'm not talking about the other side of it. Despite everything, we're here. We talk about our traumas, right? Three and a half thousand years later, we're here to talk about our trauma. We're here to talk about our gullus. We're here to talk about gula. We're developing. We're evolving. We're learning. We're here. So somebody has to say, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. That people who live, there's a big America, the United States of America. People are affluent. People are prosperous. They date for four years. Then they live together for six years. They get married and then they get divorced. In fact, every other wedding you'll attend in secular society, sadly, may end up in divorce. If it's 50% or 40% or second marriage, as they say, is even more. So why does this not happen within a Jewish family? So people like to say because women are second-class citizens and they're afraid to get divorced and there's phobias and you're going to be estranged from the family and the community and women can't support themselves and there's tremendous pressure. Grandma and mommy and the aunts tell you you have to stay married, stay married and be miserable. In the secular world, women are free to get divorced. And in the religious world, they're all subjugated to the want to get divorced. Now, again, I'm not in the, I'm not, I try not to be naive and in denial. Denial is a river in Egypt. There's certainly people who don't get divorced because of that. But to say that the whole reason that there's a disparity between divorce in the religious community and the secular community is just because the phobias and the fear of women is really not scientifically sound, and it's also not true. There is there's certainly a factor like that. There's certainly a factor like that, right? But it, it, it just does not account for the drastic difference between 20% and 50% or 15% and, and 60% or whatever the percentage. I don't know. I, I, I'm giving anecdotal numbers because I haven't done the research in a laboratory. I'm just giving more anecdotal numbers. Is there maybe something a little deeper? <laughs> and the d- depth is that there's something about Jewish life 
that sustains families and marriages in a more cohesive way, only if the two people are mentioned. I'm not saying that if you cover your hair, you go to the mikveh, you, you keep Shabbos, you keep kashras, automatically narcissism is gone, and mood disorders are gone, and trauma is gone, and mental disorder is gone, and insecurity is gone, and fear is gone, and not developing myself as a person it just becomes, and developing myself becomes unnecessary. Of course you need all these factors. But the structure of Jewish life apparently has some some power to it. And one of these things is that from the beginning of our history, married women covered their hair. So a person could say, I don't see the connection. There's nothing to it. Fine, good, good question. But an intelligent person has to stop and say, maybe there's more to this that I don't see. Good point. Huh? Okay, good. I think it's a good point. Okay, I'm not, I'm not denying that people can ask, people can ask questions and good questions and we all, every, every normal person has questions. It's normal. And there's sometimes things are difficult. It's a hot summer day and you know, you want to go out and the covering the hair could be hard. We get it. We get it. We're, we're, we're human beings. But we also have to appreciate with humility this tremendous factor. Because when somebody just says, and women sometimes tell this to me, they say, you know what, this is an old thing, it's my mother's mishagasin, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, we live in a free country, in a free society, I don't need this anymore. I'm a married woman, I'm going to be like other married women. I understand, I can also empathize, but I always tell them, just realize, marriage is very vulnerable. Almost every other marriage can end up in divorce easily. It's happening constantly, everywhere. It's happening constantly. And I have to say that the rate is growing now, even in our own communities, right? You know, when I was younger, my class got married. There's a few, a few, a few who got divorced, unfortunately. But today I speak to boys, you know, who are 20, 30 years younger than me. And sometimes they talk to me about their friends. The divorce rate isn't growing. I said, marriage is vulnerable. And if the Jews have ingredients that maintain their marriage, be careful because you're throwing something out that may, you may look at, you may look like you're throwing out the dirty water, but maybe you're throwing out a baby. What do they say? Don't throw out the baby with the water. What's the expression of iron? So, huh? What's the expression? Don't, don't throw out the baby with the dirty water. Huh? Right. So be careful. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, chas So by throwing out the bathwater, because maybe covering the hair in your family has been very repressive and oppressive, and it's been communicated in very negative and toxic ways, I get it. And maybe there's certain things you're allergic to about your community, okay. And maybe certain things happened in your youth, and the way Tzniyas was presented was in a very, very dysfunctional way. And generally, generally, I have to say this, and I'm going to say this with sensitivity and love, that very often the way we speak about intimacy and relationships is in such a scary way, it's like the devil itself, that people often they feel like to remain within the Jewish structure, it's like you have to be ashamed with your body and ashamed with your hair and ashamed with your creativity and ashamed with your sensuality and ashamed with your intimacy, and that's not a Jewish idea. Judaism can be used for these ideas, like it could be used for many other ideas. But when you learn real Yiddishkeit, especially with Nista, with Pnimi Satayri, you know intimacy is holy and the body is holy and the body doesn't only keep the score, the body keeps the divine score. And we always talk about the guf and the neshama and it says in Chassidus that when the Mashiach comes, the soul is going to be nurtured from the body, from the guf. 
and here is powerful and here has energy. So I understand that sometimes our messages can be communicated in a way that some people get allergic and they have their own traumas and wounds and therefore they want to throw away everything. But don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. <laughs> a girl wrote to me recently that she left Yiddishkeit because of something happened in her house and therefore she doesn't want to do anything. But she tells me she's still she's missing a deep relationship, a spirituality she yearns for. So I wrote back, I said, imagine somebody had a crazy father and he forced every one of the children every day to do 75 push-ups and to run three miles every day, seven days a week. And he did it like a tyrant. He enforced it like a tyrant. And now you're an adult and you get out of his influence. And the first thing you stop doing is you stop doing your push-ups, you stop doing your running because it came with tremendous trauma and oppression. I said, but at some point you have to say, one second, my father maybe did it in a wrong way, but exercise may be something that's good for my body. So find a way how to incorporate exercise without associating it with your father. Now it's hard, it's difficult. I get it. It's very difficult. You know, for some people, Shabbos tables have been very difficult places. Shul, Rabbi Shimon Russell told me the other day that a new group opened up in Yerushalayim. It's called SA, Shul Anonymous. People, that's right, Shul Anonymous. For them, going to shul is a crazy trauma because of things that happen in shul. They don't go to shul anymore. They're good people. They live in Jerusalem. They don't go to shul anymore. S.A. Shul Anonymous. Now, I don't relate to that. I have no. I, I I didn't have major trauma in shul. The shul I grew up in was a uh, was a little very pushy. <laughs> there was a lot of physical uh, physical exertion, a lot of sweating, a lot of pushing. But uh, I was privileged to daven every Shabbos with the, with the Rebbe, every Yom Tov with the Rebbe. It was uh, incredibly spiritually electrifying. But some people have a very different experience in Shul. And I get it. I get it. I'm not, I don't judge people. I told you once, uh, I once gave a speech about Shabbos, and a boy came over to me afterwards, a 25-year-old boy, 20-year-old boy, and he was crying, and he said, one day I'll keep Shabbos, one day, one day. I said, why not now? He said, I can't, I can't. I said, why not? It's very hard for me to say this over, but this is what he told me. He says, because for three years, every Friday night, the shul was empty. It's the only night that the shul was empty because everybody goes home Friday night. You know, other nights people linger in shul. My father went home and he says, and somebody in the shul waited and this person would molested him every single Friday night in the shul because he knew nobody's there. So he says, for me, Shabbos is associated with rape. Because he used Shabbos, I said in my lecture, that Shabbos is a day of serenity. He said, not my Shabbos. So um, you can never judge such a person. You have to empathize. You have to empathize with a person. You have to understand what people go through. But as we help ourselves and we help others and we mature, we have to be able to challenge ourselves in a healthy, compassionate way and say, am I throwing out the baby with the bathwater? Now here the Tzemach Tzedek gives us a little bit of a perspective in terms of covering the hair. And there's also a letter by the Lubavitcher Rebbe to somebody about this, explaining this mimer about women covering their hair versus shaving their hair. It's Primtin Lakute Sichas, volume 23, Nasai. And the next few minutes, I'm just going to bring out one point Again, I'm trying to apply it to our lives in a practical way. And that is as follows. What's obvious from this Maimir is, and we know this from life, that hair has energy. 
here is not just a physical phenomenon, you know. A horse has hair, <laughs> and a sheep has a lot of hair, we call it wool, and a person also has hair. Hair has energy. What is more, what we're learning is that feminine hair, a woman's hair, contains incredibly powerful energy. It, incla- it, it, it contains sensual energy. Sensual. Sensual energy is energy that has something there to it. And the fact is that you see that people often, they define their self-esteem by their hair. <laughs> what people do with their hair sometimes becomes very interconnected with their identity. I'm not judging it. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying that here is is almost a form of, of self-expression, you know? What my hair looks like, what my hair doesn't look like, the color of my hair, <laughs> my hair do. It's not something I relate to so much personally because, you know, I just grew up, uh, you take a haircut a few times a year, but, you know, I see hair, hair is, is something very powerful. Women's hair, even more, women's hair has a lot of, has a very deep energy to it. And as the Tzemach Tzedek says, it starts with God. The creative energy of Hashem flows through the hair. The hair has the creative energy. That's what creates the worlds. A woman who is responsible for the creation of the future generation primarily, I mean, the man contributes the seed of life and the woman conceives it and together with the egg develops embryo, develops into an embryo and into a fetus and into a child. Her hair channels that creative energy of God's hair. So a woman's hair has very deep, intimate, and sensual energy. Now, here's the rule. Whenever you're dealing with intense, deep, creative energy, you have to realize that it needs to be protected. Why does it have to be protected? Because as the Tzemach Tzedek says, the energy can be misconstrued and it can be misused. What does this mean on a practical base, on a practical level? What it means, I think, on a practical level, at least on one level, I'm not exhausting all of the explanations and and covering all the bases, but at least on one level. If you would ask, and you would make a real, real survey, and this has been done anonymously a few years ago, how many people, both males and females, in a marriage, I'm talking about in general society, general secular society, how many, how, how much unloyalty or lack of fidelity and faithfulness exists in contemporary marriages, let's say across the United States of America. Anybody knows? In other words, practically speaking, how many couples end up in a situation where one or both of them are disloyal in the marriage? (laughs) So nobody talks about this openly, but anonymous research has been done (laughs) with questions asking men and women without names, everybody would be open. And I mean, I've, I've, I've seen some of these uh, research papers. They're incredibly, you could look them up. And you're talking about situations that are mind-staggering, mind-staggering, literally mind-staggering. It was even numbers that was hard for me to believe. You're not talking about 50%, you're not talking about 60%, you're not talking about 70%. Some even argue that the numbers are so high, it's hard for people to believe. Now, not... Not everybody, not everybody. <laughs> there's some very good people. I'm not talking here about Jewish society. I'm talking about general, general society. And there's a reason for it. Ein apotropos la Sexual energy is very, very powerful. 
And to sustain a good marriage, especially if you're a sensitive person and you're an emotionally developed person and you're a deep person and you need camaraderie, you need love, it needs a lot of work. Now, if you do that work, it's incredibly powerful because you have a tremendous loyalty. But if not, it's very easy to disintegrate. One of the foundations that God gave the Jewish people one of the directions was that when a woman is married, she covers her hair. What is that about? It's a statement. It's not a statement only for other men or for other women. It's a statement for herself. And that is, when a woman goes out to the street with covered hair, she's making a statement for herself. My sensual and my intimate and my sexual energy belongs to me. It's not something that the public can nash from. Now we say, come on, who's nashing? We minimize the power of sensuality. We minimize the power of intimacy. We minimize the power of electricity. Just like people who make fun of Yichud. They say, what's the big deal if I'll be with my secretary in one room? But all the problems of the Me Too movement, you follow the Me Too movement, and all the problems of sexual harassment, it all happens because we're not careful with Yichud. You remember what happened with Clarence Thomas? You remember? There was a Supreme Court justice... African-American, very intelligent man, Clarence Thomas, and he was being nominated to the Supreme Justice of the United States of America, and a woman, a secretary, Anita Hill, came around, you remember, and claimed that things that were inappropriate happened, and the Senate had a hearing for the whole America to watch, for the whole America to watch what happened, and then I realized, wow, if only they would have been careful with Yichud. If only they would have been careful with Yichud. If only... A man would know you're not allowed to be locked up and you're not allowed to be in a private room with a woman who's not your spouse and not your relative. I'm not talking about your mother, your daughter, your, your wife. I'm talking about strangers. Why? Because intimacy is real. Electricity is real. Energy is real. It's not a fake thing. And if you're a healthy person, it's even more real. It's not, something to be, it's not something to be embarrassed of. This is how God made us. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. But it has to be harnessed. And because a woman's here has so much power to it, and it can also be misconstrued because it's the energy, the creative energy of Malchus. It's God's creative energy, which in English is called intimate energy, energy that creates, which some people call sexual energy. I usually don't use that term, because I know how much it could be misconstrued. So as you realize in my classes, I don't use this term. I'm using it now because I want to bring out the power of it. Intimacy is creative energy. It's God's energy to create life. And a woman's here carries a lot of that energy. It's very powerful. It's very deep. And that's why it's appealing. That's why it's attractive. That's why a woman is sensitive to her here. And she should be sensitive to her here. So the Torah says... When a woman goes out to the street, people think that a woman has to cover their hair her hair because men are promiscuous. A woman once told me, it's my problem, let the men stay home. <laughs> They're right, yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> I'm just joking. Let the men cover their eyes. Let the men cover their eyes. What's my, I, have, I have to cover my hair because there's men who can't control themselves. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. Even if the only people walking in the street was the Balshemtiv, the Arizal, and Moshe Rabbeinu, and the Vilna, and the Vilna, the Vilna Gan, and Rabbi Yishmael Kain Godlin, Rabbi Yechina Ben Zaka, and Yeshaya Hanavi. <laughs> and five blind men. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Or five blind men. And the women walking in the street were Sari Imenu, Rivke Imenu, Rachel Imenu, <laughs> Leah, 
and Moshe's wife Tzipoira and other tzaddikas, and there would still be the halacha of yichud. I once told somebody, the Balshemtiv and Sarah are not allowed to be in the same room. Nobody suspects the Balshemtiv of anything. And nobody suspects Sarah of anything. Holy people. But the way God made the world is that between a good, a healthy man and a healthy woman, there is electricity. There's electricity. Yes, chashmal. You could deny it. But the reason we're denying it is because we are somewhat emotionally numb. We don't allow ourselves to feel our emotions. Maybe there's so much exposure that people numb their emotions. They numb their senses. So that's a, that's, that's, that's a curse. That's not a blessing. If you're healthy, if you're active, they're not going to be in the same room because there's something happening. You say, nah, not with me. Well, you know what? Maybe you need healing. <laughs> Maybe you need to learn what it means to be a man. Maybe you need to learn what it means to be a woman. So when the woman goes out, and the hair is covered, it's not because the men are promiscuous and I now have to wear shmata because men, well, I have to sacrifice my life for strange men. It's much deeper than that. Much deeper. It's about yourself. It's a statement for yourself more than anybody else. It's a statement that this energy, which is very intense, it's my creative, intimate energy, has boundaries. It's not for everybody to look at. It's not for everybody to feel. It's not for everybody to get. It's deserved for me. And I choose where to express it. For example, with my husband in our home, in our bedroom. That's where I'm going to express it. That maintains the sacredness of sensual energy. It maintains the sacredness of sexual energy. It maintains the boundaries. And it's all about boundaries. The reasons that marriages cannot succeed is because the boundaries break down. When there's healthy bound, boundaries are not bad. Boundaries are essential to relationships. Boundaries means my intimacy belongs to you. Your intimacy belongs to me. It doesn't belong to the whole world. Because when it belongs to the whole world, the relationship with the person you're so close with gets compromised. That relationship, again, we can deny it, but that relationship becomes much more weak. It's deprived of that deep trust. Marriages are built on trust, loyalty, dedication. That's what marriages are built on. Vulnerability, complete honesty. The fact that I know you're here for me a thousand percent, I'm here for you a thousand percent. And when we're missing that, it contaminates it. Some people say, but sometimes the shaitl is nicer than the hair. <laughs> the shaitl is nicer than the hair. The point of covering here is not that you shouldn't look nice. People think, this is like uh, the Muslims, people think the reason you cover the hair is you shouldn't look nice. That's not the reason you cover your hair. That's not the reason. Judaism believes in beauty. <laughs> when beauty is detached from, from ethics, from spirituality, it's on the beauty too. on the beauty too. Judaism is not opposed to it, on the contrary. But it's beauty that's holistic. It's not that the shaitl, oh, will make me ugly, the shaitl makes me beautiful. That's not the issue. The issue is that your natural here has your intimate energy. And that intimate energy doesn't belong to the whole world. Not just for their sake, for your sake. And you know what? Subconsciously, every man who sees a woman covering the hair, even if the shaitl is the most beautiful shaitl, there's a very deep statement. And the statement is... I don't belong to the whole world. 
I have boundaries. I own my body. I own my energy. I own my soul. I have a husband. I have a family. There's deep loyalty. There's deep commitment. There's deep energy. We could scoff at this. We can, we can dismiss it. We could say it's insignificant. But you have to look at the pudding. You have to look at the reality. The proof is in the pudding. Three and a half thousand years later, Jewish marriages are very strong. Jewish families are strong. We have problems. We have challenges. We have dysfunction. We need to work out a lot of issues. No question. But there's something. The proof is in the pudding. This explains why it's only after marriage. And this explains why you don't have to shave the hair, only cover the hair. Because a woman, before marriage, a certain part of her is not aroused. After marriage, she's not just in the state of pre-marriage. After marriage, her inner intimate energy comes to the fore because there is now an active relationship. Or to put it a little differently, after marriage, she's in a state where she could become a creator of life. Before marriage, she's... She's living a self-contained life. After marriage, when there is already an intimacy, now she becomes like God, a mashpia. <laughs> now her here is not just here. The here is now a manifestation of divine creative energy of Malchus. Because intimacy, marriage, intimacy, relationships brings out a certain part of a woman's personality and a man's personality that was more dormant before, was more latent before. So the here now captures the flow of Malchus in a much more intense and powerful way and can be misconstrued, can be misused, can be corrupted. It's vulnerable. Anything that's vulnerable must be protected. One of the most painful things in life is if you express to me your vulnerability and instead of being an empathetic witness, I throw it back at your face. Ever happened to you? Somebody opens their heart to you, somebody expresses their vulnerability to you, and instead of holding on to it and protecting it and creating a safe space, what do you do? You make fun, you run away, you become cynical, you throw it back in their face. It's very, very hurtful. Here is vulnerable. A woman's here is very vulnerable. It can be misused. It can be misconstrued. Not just by strangers. The, by her herself, the way she sees herself. The way she sees her own image vis-a-vis herself. The covering of the here is a spiritual and physical boundary, a statement to yourself. I own my soul. I own my body. I own my sexuality. I own my sensuality. I own my energy. I own my electricity. God gave it to me to protect its mind. And there's certain spaces where I share it without any boundaries, without any covers, without any protection, because there's absolute fidelity, absolute trust, absolute dedication, absolute loyalty, absolute connection. And there's other situations where I say, there's a boundary here. And every man walking feels it in one way or another, consciously or unconsciously. There's a boundary, there's something off limits. But it's not just because we want to protect the men. That's, that's a beautiful thing to protect the men. But it's much deeper than that. It's for you yourself. And it's for your own energy because there's a real flow of energy there. That's the flow of Malchus. And Malchus is very vulnerable because Malchus can become... Malchus really is very sensual. Malchus is manifested in the world. Malchus is intimate. Malchus is God's intimacy. And intimate energy, if it's not protected, it can be misused. 
and therefore you cover the hair. When she's a girl, that aspect has not been triggered yet. It hasn't come out fully because she's not engaged in that aspect of life. So the hair doesn't carry that energy. And that's why she doesn't have to shave the hair because the problem is not the hair itself. Hair is amazing. Hair is holy. Hair is beautiful. It's the way it can be processed in a world that doesn't respect boundaries, in a world that doesn't respect vulnerability, in a world that does not understand always the difference between an intimate relationship and just a charming relationship that has no real, real lifelong commitments and connection. And in such a world, you need boundaries. It's not the here that is klipa. The here is very deep energy. And in a space that's open, which is outside of the house, in public, the Torah commands the woman, sayer bi'isha erva, that this power needs, needs for the energy to be yours, for the energy to be maintained, for the energy not to be squandered, it should be covered. The, so, the, the source of women covering the hair is in Parshas Naso. In Parshas Naso, it speaks about a saita, and the Torah says over there, Upara Esroisha Isha. As part of the process of saita, it's a very intense process. He exposes the head, the hair of the woman. So we see clearly from Chumash already, Parshas Naso, that the regular fashion, the normal, the, the halachic way that a woman's hair should be treated is that she should cover it. So it's from the Chumash, from the Torah, the book of Numbers, Bamidbar, the second portion, Parshas Nasai. And this is discussed in Gemara and Brachas, and in Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law. Now there's different customs. Some, you know, some uh, cover their hair today with sheitlach, with wigs, others with tichlach, snoods, hats, different, as I said, some communities have different customs and different traditions, but the halach is that the woman covers the hair. A woman writes here that... As a woman, we know how here, huh? Yeah. Is it is it yeah, 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 yeah. It, it yeah. included in the Tariyag Mitzvahs? Um, um, it's not included in Tariyag Mitzvahs because it's derived from the Pasuk. It's derived from Pares Roshayisha. Torah doesn't say clearly the words a woman should cover their hair like a Mitzvah say. But according to many, it's a Dairais. A woman writes here, we know how hair is important for women. <laughs> we spend much time, energy, and money <laughs> on our hair, among other things. Hair is also very attractive to a potential mate. Once that mate is found, however, I think it's so important to know that I don't want my hair to belong to everybody. I don't want my hair to attract everybody. Yes, I'm reserving my hair for the chosen one because my hair contains something that's very intimate, and very beautiful, and very gorgeous, and very meaningful to me, and I'm reserving it for the one that I chose. It's not there for everybody to nash from, and I don't want to squander that. I want. I don't want to squander that energy. I think that's a big part of it, at least for me. This is what the person, woman, wrote. Very thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can ask. Yeah. Yeah, I know some people wear techlach. Yeah, I know. Some there's there's, diff, there's different in hagim and different traditions. Yeah. In the Zohar, there's a whole section speaking about the tremendous blessing for a wife and a husband and a family and children when hair is covered. Tremendous bracha. Somebody writes very interestingly the previous the previous vice president was uh, what was his name Mike Pence, and he never he said that he never ever had lunch with a woman 
unless uh, a third person was present or his wife was present. And the media tore him to pieces. You know, they made fun of him. You know, he's basically from the Stone Age. And uh, but I think that Mike Pence is an example for people because he showed people how vulnerable marriage can be if you don't protect it. Yes. Going out with other women doesn't, it seems benign. People do it all the time, right? You work with somebody in the office and you go out. And sometimes it is benign, but it's just so important to understand how vulnerable people are. Don't deny it. I know couples, they go out together, right? And then they come back and he's comparing his wife to the other wife and the other husband is comparing this wife to the other wife and the women are comparing themselves to each other and to the other men. Now, sometimes it's benign, (laughs) But sometimes people don't realize, you know, you could dismiss it, you could say it's nothing, it's not nothing, it's a serious thing, and it could really come in between a husband and a wife. And and marriages don't get destroyed from atom bombs and from big missiles, from F-16s. What destroys marriages is those little, little feelings of of distrust, of, of, of lack of loyalty, lack of vulnerability. That's what happens. Somebody says, Moshe didn't want to use the mirrors that the women brought to the Mishkan because he said it's made for the Yetzirah. And Hashem said, Elu These mirrors are more precious than anything because the women used them to create the future generations of Jews in Egypt. Yes, that's a classic example. That's a famous Rashi in Parshas Vayakil, a beautiful Rashi. And um, yes, incredible. Hashem taught Moshe that, no, this is the most precious thing in the world because intimacy in Judaism is not unholy. It's very sacred. I agree, somebody writes, that today we are numb. We are numb. God's master plan is that we shouldn't be numb. Maybe our whole understanding of what intimacy is wrong. We deny so much of our sensual nature and we don't allow ourselves to be who we are. We strip ourselves from our natural, healthy, vibrant self. Yeah, well, what you're right. What happens is when you're overexposed to something in order to survive, you have to dull those emotions. I am certain that many teenagers and young men and women, they are forced, not, not, not deliberately, to dull certain energy inside of them in order to survive in a very, very open society. And you know what? It affects marriages. It affects marriages. Why is Yichud the big? Why is Yichud such a big deal? Somebody is asking. What's wrong if I'm alone with a man in a room? That's what I was explaining. That if people are real, there is an energy that happens, and that energy is not bad. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But it has to be protected. It has to be protected. This is an interesting question. If a woman is married to a non-Jew, does she have to cover her hair? <laughs> and the answer is. <laughs> Such an interesting question. Halachically, I, I, I'm pretty impressed how from this woman is that she's asking a question. If I'm married to a non-Jew, do I still have to cover my hair? Wow, wow, wow. The Blavitzik of Baditchev would have made from this a Gavaldika piece. The Blavitzik of Baditchev would say, Ah, Micha Yisrael. She still wants to cover her hair. It's a very interesting question. I have to see what the halachic authorities say about this. My instinctive response without research is that generally marriage to a non-Jew halachically is not considered marriage. That's why you don't need a divorce. What if the woman married to the non-Jew has 11 children with him? They had together 11 children. 
Maybe you can email me privately and I could further research this because I, I, I never researched this and I don't know, I'm just going to give an example. But generally, in halacha, marriage to a non-Jew is not recognized as a halachic marriage and that's why you don't need a get. You don't need a divorce. You're saying because there were so many children, does that change anything? Interesting question. You're saying that since she's married and the bottom line is that there's intimacy so therefore, maybe she should have to cover the hair based on what we explained before, because she's not, she's not a nesua, but is she considered a pnuya? She's a baula. Okay, very interesting question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Esther, Esther, Rabbi, Esther Hamalka and Achashverosh. Yeah, Esther Hamalka and Achashverosh. You want to know if Esther covered her hair? <laughs> interesting. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.